Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus-year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I am President, Professor of Old Testament here, and I'm joined with my venerable colleagues, Dr. Tommy Keene, Professor of New Testament and Academic Dean, Dr. Paul Jean, Professor professor of New Testament and Pastoral Theology. Mm-hmm. Huzzah. Huzzah. Okay. <laughs> Newly appointed. Dr. Grace Atanto, Professor of Systematic Theology, and Dr. Peter Lee, Dean of Students and Professor of Old Testament. And we are continuing on now in our next episode of Tough Texts with an exclamation point. So where are we talking about today, guys? What's the uh, uh, Tough Texts? Tough text. Tough text. There you go. Okay. Tough text. All right. I, I had That's to get my more, game. It's more aggressive than we've done in the past. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> this is kind of a scream of terror, it sounds like now. Tough text. Yep. And our tough text today is Revelation chapter 20, the whole thing. Revelation 20, the text about the tough topic of the millennium. There we go. Okay. So dear listener, listen at home. Uh, you can pause the podcast if you want and you can go read revelation 20 all the way through, but let me just give you a little sampling to locate us in this conversation. And then I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Tommy Keene, who's going to introduce the toughness, the tough issues that are at work here in this, uh, in this passage. This is a passage that, um, have, uh, encouraged, have drawn into worship, and have vexed the Christian church over the last 2,000 years in terms of how to interpret it and what's going on. And we're focusing on, there's a lot happening here in this apocalyptic text, but we're going to be focusing in on what, what are we to make of the millennium, the thousand years that are mentioned here. Okay, Revelation 20, verse 1 starts with an announcement um, uh, of the angel's descent from heaven. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, Behold in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, okay, he's been wreaking havoc on the earth, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. Notice the name Lucifer is not used, reference back to earlier tough text passage. Okay, the devil uh, and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years had ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. And this text continues on. I'd go down to verse seven. And then the thousand years, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And so now uh, begins this great eschatological battle involving the whole of the earth. And he's using uh, Ezekiel's language there of Gog and Magog when, when Ezekiel talks about the future battle of the restoration uh, of Israel that will involve all of the different corners of the earth too. Okay, so this is one of those times where we have a really specific number here, a thousand years. It's anticipated, it happens, it then comes to an end. And it raises the question, what's going on with the millennium? And of course, as, as our listeners will know, the Christian church has come up with a variety of different interpretations. So let me throw it over to you, Tommy Keene, to uh, help us 
understand how the church has responded to this passage in the past? Yeah, there's there's three principal views, and uh, but the first thing I think we have to say about all of them is that under each of these three principal views, there is a thousand and one iterations. Yeah, right. So we'll keep things broad here, uh, but premillennialism, which I think is probably still the dominant view in the United States among evangelicals, that. Um, th- Premillennialism, the millennium, we have a normal time, mm-hmm. and then now Jesus— we're, we're living in now. We're living—well, maybe. Yeah. It depends on— Yeah, okay, who you're talking to. <laughs> on who you're talking That's to. Right. Right. But, yeah, so we—you know, Jesus is raised, and then normal time, and then Jesus returns, and we begin a redemptive historical period of a thousand years, of a literal 1,000-year period in mm-hmm. which the— um, stuff happens. Jesus reigns on the earth. And Mm -hmm. this is where we get kind of different iterations of what that might look like. Is there a rapture? Is the millennium after a tribulation or before? You get all sorts of iterations there, which I'm not an expert in. But the the key issue is Jesus returns and we exit special time and enter this kind of millennial reign. Which lasts for a thousand years. Which lasts for a literal thousand years. And then final judgment. So final judgment and the return of Christ are disconnected. Mm-hmm. And in between them, we have this thousand year. So reign. in that case, the battle of Magog and Gog is post the thousand years. There's right. this period of uprising. Satan harnesses his, his team together and they go out against the Lord and lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then post-millennialism, we've got the, you know, Jesus is raised we enter normal time, and at some point during normal time, the church rises to prominence in such a way that it can be described as victorious. And again, mm-hmm. tons of different iterations of this. What distinguishes postmillennialism is a optimistic yeah. period of the church in which it basically reigns. Christianity. We, we have a, a period of what we might call Christendom mm-hmm. on the earth, global Christendom on the earth that lasts either for a literal thousand years or a thousand years-ish, yeah. then there's a great battle at the end, and then Jesus returns. Mm-hmm. So at some point in normal time, the clock starts, the 1,000-year clock starts ticking, and that period is distinguished from normal time in, insofar as the church age mm-hmm. reaches a kind of Christendom, mm-hmm. a success. Yeah, yeah. And then finally, the amillennial position, which seems to, in some ways, resist the plain sense of the text, would argue that in that first resurrection, when Jesus is raised, we begin a period of the millennium, which ends with Jesus's return and final judgment all at the same time. Mm. So Jesus returns, and there's a final judgment. Everything in between is normal time, mm-hmm. and that normal time is a 1,000-year, symbolically, a 1,000-year yeah. period of the throwing down of Satan, the church age, which will conclude then with a final—some argue a final battle, some do not—but mm-hmm. a final moment of Christ returning, bringing about the new heavens and the new earth, final judgment, the— devil is thrown into the lake of fire now. Okay. 
And does there need to be a last battle before that time in the Ah Mill view? Peter's, Peter's nodding yes next to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Uh, I was just throwing you under the bus. Well, I'm not throwing you one, under the bus. You were nodding. Spot and this is what happens. <laughs> I'm a creature of habit. I need, need to be in a certain position to think properly. <laughs> uh, well, I, so I, I, would, I hold that it maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> My official position is. <laughs> maybe. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think there's actually a strong biblical warrant for that position. For, for maybe. For maybe. <laughs> okay. okay. I, I'll, I'll, if we have the time, I'll, I'll lay out. I think, the, I think the, the proper position is it matters what happens. <laughs> right. Which sounds, which sounds kind of, uh, you know, whatever. I don't know. Yeah. But, it, uh, in, of course, in God's eternal decree, Okay, we have to say this is true of all these things. Out of God's eternal decree, there is a thing He has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. And yet the Bible spends so much time in our response to that. We don't have access to the eternal decree. And I think there's a strong argument that it kind of matters what the church does, if the, what the battle's going to look like, what the return is going to look that like. That there's a conditionality. There's a conditionality to it. Just like there was to the first coming of Christ, there will be to the second. And I think actually Peter tells us that in Second Peter three, you know, the, the Lord is waiting so that all might repent. There's right there, you have a conditionality. All mm-hmm. must repent, so that when, for the Lord's wait to end. A historical contingency. Yeah, there's a historical contingency. Yeah, I t- I do think there's a crisis, a final battle, yeah. and the reason why is uh, well, uh, kind of simplistically, Revelation mentions it. It, it alludes to the Gog Magog crisis, um, the. Uh, the Ezekiel thirty-eight, thirty-nine uh, section there. In fact, it it, it seems to specify that um, you know Satan is bound. Uh, it is interesting that uh, Satan is described as a dragon that he is bound at the beginning of the church age, mm-hmm. roughly around the death, resurrection, ascension. Mm-hmm. You know, right around there, that Satan is bound, which means he is uh, being prevented from doing something during the millennium, and then he is released. Uh, and the text does seem to specify that he is released for a particular purpose, and that is to deceive the nations, to rally them together for mm-hmm. one last antichrist crisis battle. And that's the allusion to the Gog-Magog reference there, that uh, he is now taking rebellious uh, uh, nations for one last battle. Uh, it doesn't use the word Armageddon there, but, you know, it. the mm-hmm. same crisis here it's is alluded to type in language. uh, in, uh uh, Revelation 16, where the term Armageddon is used. So even though it does, so in other words, I would say Armageddon is a Gog Magog crisis, and that is the last battle. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily earthly, but yet still very real, yeah. um, because this is at the mountain of God, whatever that might mm-hmm. refer to. But it's still a real thing. And then at that moment, the defeat of Satan and these rebellious nations is the championship of the Messiah, of God, and now the entrance of the eternal kingdom. At least that's my read, is that you have the millennium, a a final battle, eternal kingdom. Just that very simple. And, that, uh, I, and I guess I would take the final battle as coinciding with the great right throne judgment. Mm. This is also the day of uh, resurrection. Uh, which is also the day of the renewal of the new heavens and new earth, the cosmic uh, renewal. Um, I take that all as sort of, you know, these various different eschatological events are different events, but they're all coterminous. They're all happening at the same time at the end. Mm -hmm. 
if we're defining amillennialism, amillennialism can embrace both positions. That, that what distinguishes the millennium is the first resurrect that Jesus was raised. We begin the millennial period. It ends with the final judgment, which may or may not be the result of a literal final battle. I think our first decision is, yeah. do we believe that, what do we think this millennium refers to yeah. in the actual text? And in defense of pre- and post-millennialism, Revelation 20 comes after Revelation 19. Mm-hmm. And it looks like because Revelation 20 comes after Revelation 19 that the events of Revelation 20 would naturally come after the events of Revelation 19. And to further the defense there, uh, Revelation does read like that. It is unlike other apocalyptic literature in that it is not a set of visions that are disconnected and then compiled together. It is one single narratival vision that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. In the middle, the dragon is introduced. The dragon does things that there was no dragon in Revelation 11. Uh, the dragon enters the story in Revelation 12, does things, and is finally thrown down in Revelation 20, thrown into this pit in Revelation yeah. 20. And so it looks like these events are after the previous events, and Revelation reads like that as a kind of cohesive narrative, and this is the final climactic end of that narrative. No. So what do you do with that? <laughs> do you hold That's to the re- re- recapitulation approach that to it's, revelation? That it's a cycle. Yeah. That these yeah. Are, it's a narrative, but it's got cycles that are focusing in on different aspects of the narrative as you go the, all the way through. Yeah. So I, I hold to uh, Poitras's position, which in a classic Poitras way is yes. Mm-hmm. It's all of these things. Yeah. So it is a narrative. And we need to, there, there are things that the author of Revelation, that John is doing, beca- that he can only do mm-hmm. as a kind of single stretch, as a single narrative, and that we should respect that. But in the, at the same time, there are these cycles. Mm-hmm. And to prove that, I would go to Revelation 12. So do the events of Revelation 12 come after the events of Revelation 11? Well, exegetically, I don't think we can argue that they can Mm -hmm. because the dragon is Satan and Satan is uh, seeking out the male child. He's searching, he's pursuing the woman, trying to Mm -hmm. destroy the woman who is Israel to prevent the male child being born. The male child is born and raised. So these, so this is a description of the ascension of Christ, and in the ascension of Christ, Satan is thrown down, which Peter you alluded to earlier. So Jesus raised and ascended, and this constitutes the throwing down of the devil, uh, the dragon, the weakening, the binding of the strong man, whatever that entails. All of that has to be a description of revelation, uh, a description of the ascension, which. By the way, Revelation is already described in Revelation 5. Yeah. So I think we have to accept some level of cyclical pattern, and yeah. I think we see seven cycles of seven. Yeah. And so for those keeping track at home, then, Satan being bound, thrown out of heaven, 
would correspond to what happens redemptive historically in the Ascension and Pentecost and the sending of the apostles, right. where now suddenly we have something we didn't have before, which is an influx of Gentiles. The nations are no longer deceived. Right. The Gentiles are now flooding into the church. So and then I, yeah. So then yeah. I come to Revelation twenty. Yeah. And actually, if I'm if I've seen those cycles of seven, which are especially at the beginning, are very obvious. You know, yeah. like seven seals, seven trumpets. Seven signs. So you're kind of prepped mm-hmm. for this series of seven. Um, so I come to Revelation 20, and I get. Uh, I'm actually restarting. I've in, I've ended a cycle of seven, and I'm starting a new cycle of seven. I think I'm I'm prepped. You know, hermeneutically <clears throat> to think this is a, right. a reset. This no. is back to the beginning, which is a, a, a this is a, yet another description of the period of the church between the first and second resurrection. Yeah. So it's a narrative that projects the ending of different aspects of the narrative as the narrative progresses, right? right? So right. you get to track, you know, it's, it's almost like a movie where you follow characters or scenes out as different threads, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, it's one and of those postmodern movies. Yeah, and then finally at the end, it all comes together and goes synced and syncs yeah. up really nice with Revelation 20 and 21. Beautifully put. So is so in that case, then, if someone is reading this, you can read 19 to 20 sequentially as a whole narrative, and yet you can also recognize that there is a judgment and sort of a, a completion of victory at the end of 19 with the with the prophets. Right. We come. We come. Being each. thrown into a lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and we're getting this is the end. But now yeah. you're not getting the whole of the end, but you're getting a big piece of the end. Right. And this is this is another pattern in Revelation that we get very in each at the end of each seven. Yeah. The the sixth iteration takes a long time. The first mm. five are pretty quick. Yeah. Um, those first five seals open pretty quick then six we get a very long description yeah and then there's a pause yeah and the seventh is when the seven is open we get a new set of seven so out yeah. of the seventh seal comes seven trumpets yeah so and seven bowls of judgment right. And, yeah right yeah and it just built it's building this anticipation and that's that narrative i it's think kind of telling us scope it? yeah it, it we get this increase in tension over the course and then revelation 20 and 21 mm-hmm we finally have that. We we finally get to see what we, the seventh, has never given us, which is the yeah. visions of the new heavens and the new earth. It's beautiful, and the fact that it starts with seven letters to seven churches. Uh-huh. It's like it's like the book has an answer key right there at the <laughs> okay. beginning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For more, I wish someone see would, my uh, published yes. works. I'm uh, referencing a great a great uh, article by Dr. Tommy Keen on his blog called Revelation Comes with an Answer Key, right? Yeah. Am I and, remembering and TGC that correctly? published yeah, TGC the ver- that. version. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's a, that was a very helpful, helpful article. I agree. Thank you, brothers. To the point, though, <laughs> yeah. um, so that that's what puts me in the amillennial camp. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is not to say a pre-mill and post-mill view these are all orthodox views. Well, and can I, you said earlier that the Amil view kind of resists the plain reading. It resists the plain reading in the local context, but if you kind of read the book as a whole and you're looking at these cycles yeah. of seven, it kind of is, it, it sort of fits yeah. with the plain reading. Yeah. You know? I, I think so. The, it, I do think we need to think about, and this goes back to the is there going to be a final battle question. Yeah. 
is there, what is John trying to tell us in so far as this is one cohesive story? Yeah. And it does, it does lend me to view the, this idea that there will, there is, the future will be like the past in the sense that this is all normal time. This is all superintended by God's providence rather than through direct redemptive historical intervention. And yet, there is a narrative shape to history. It's mm-hmm. not just a series of unfortunate events until Christ comes. <laughs> it is. A, it does have meaning to it. And so the church, like you put it earlier, Scott, there's a conditionality. The mm-hmm. things that we do matter, and you know, change change the the way the story, yeah, will is shaped and will end. Yeah. I mean, the way I think about it, and this is in light of Daniel, which Dr. Lee is going to be teaching on next semester, and Ezekiel, is that we're getting a picture of the restoration kingdom, and we're getting, like, this is how the restoration kingdom will unfold, right? And like in Daniel, when Daniel's laying out the restoration kingdom ahead of the events, all right, you know, before the coming of Christ, one of the things Daniel's very interested in is, is saying a lot's going to happen. There's going to be a lot of intrigue. There's going to be historical events. This isn't going to happen. Don't expect it to happen overnight. There's going to be back and forth. And when you see the back and forth, don't, don't throw your hands up and say, wait, I thought your kingdom had come, Lord. He's like, this is how it's, this is how it's going to take place. And John borrowing, you know, read, being very aware of Daniel and Ezekiel, I think, is making a similar point. It's, it, there's a little bit in the later New Testament. There's this. Uh, there's this. There's a little bit of this batten down the hatches. It's going to take a while. Right. Kind of sense, right? Right. Peter, Second Peter three. Don't don't worry when people say, "Where is the Lord? Where where is His coming?" You know, uh, He doesn't tarry as many say tarry, as many say tarry, but He's patient so that all might repent. There's this idea of like get get ready. This is going to take a while. There's going to be back and forth. Here's what you need to do: be strong, be brave, be faithful, proclaim the kingdom go out in the opposition undaunted because at the end the, the, the battle will be won. Right. However, again, taking that Old Testament view of this, the prophets will regularly preach to those Israelites in exile saying, yes, you're in exile. Yes, there's a struggle. But the Lord has set aside a time when he will restore Israel, right? But then what will they do? So therefore, repent and believe and be strong, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Jeremiah 29, letter to the uh, exiles. Um, when you seek me, you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And I think this is a message to the church too, that, um, we should be doing those things that the Lord told us we need to do before he returns, like preach the gospel to all the nations, right? The martyrdom needs to reach its full discipleship. All should repent. Yeah. Right. Going out to the nations, preaching the gospel and the great commission. Um, so that when the battle comes and Gog and Magog are called, there's not a whole lot of non-believers around. I think that's something Christians could aspire for, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> Preach the gospel so that Gog and Magog's army is uh, is pretty depleted because everybody's a Christian. That'd be great. That would be right? great. Um, now, I don't think it's promising that, but see, likewise with the Old Testament too. I think it, I think the, the Lord prophetically is offering us this yeah. thing, and yet at the same time he's saying now, Jeremiah 18 style, how are you going to respond? I think right. that's a, that's something that pre- and post-millennialism are stronger at than all-millennialism. Is, mm-hmm. you, you know, the things that we do matter. Yeah. Uh, right. And from an all-millennial perspective, 
that's something we should reclaim. And I think that's something that the narrative shape of, of right. Revelation and other of these prophetic texts uh, get us to. Yeah. And another thing that might need to be said is this is the only text in Scripture that mentions a millennium. Yeah. So we've got three views, three very and, – and these views, you know, have historically been very opposed to one another. We've, we've, we've fought about these as, as churches. Um, are, it's really based on one text. Mm-hmm. And to your point, Scott, we have other texts that talk about the church's relationship to the world prior to the second coming of Christ. We've got a lot of Old Testament and New Testament texts about that that should be, I think, more constitutive for mm-hmm. our thinking about you know, the future and pastoral theology and the nature of the church. Right. Um, and you know, Hebrews comes to mind. What is, it always comes to mind, but <laughs> what, is, what, is the, what is the church? How do we describe the church age? prior to the second coming of Christ, it is all a wilderness wandering. Yeah. You know, th- we are out of Egypt, but we are not yet in promised land. Mm-hmm. And so we are to be faithful uh, and to love one another and to serve one another. And uh, and then, you know, especially in a New Testament context, you know, we're to disciple the nations. We're to be priests yeah. of the nations. We can bring in First Peter here. But we're, we're exiles, we're sojourners, we're wilderness wanderers. And so our basic kind of attitude towards the culture and towards the world should be, as Jesus taught us in Matthew 28, to, yeah. uh, to disciple the nations, to bless, to baptize, to call for repentance, and to mm. be faithful. Mm. Yeah, and so when you raise the question that you brought up earlier of optimism versus pessimism, Tommy, um, as you're saying here, I think the amillennialist can look at world history and can say, you know, there, there's reasons for optimism and there's reasons for pessimism. Mm. I don't think the post mill or the pre mill person has a has a corner on the market of how to understand mm. world history. As we look around the world, we have, we have to admit it's uh, if if the gospel was expanding to take over the face of the earth, what do we do with the fact that the major centers of Christianity in the early church are now almost completely overrun with an un, you know, with with pagan belief mm-hmm. of Islam, you know, for instance, Antioch and Alexandria. You know, what what do you do with the fact that um, we've had incredible periods of darkness and unbelief in huge areas of the world that used to be known for as Christian centers? Mm-hmm. Okay, what do you do with places like Rwanda? We might say, well, look at things are just getting better. Look at the American church. All right, people some mm-hmm. might might snicker when you say that. <laughs> 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 but but what do you do then with Rwanda? Right. What do you do with the Christians, uh, you know, in Gaza right now who are who are sleeping in different houses so that the whole church isn't wiped out by a bomb? Mm-hmm. You know, um, what, what do you, you know, th- th- it's it's hard to say that uh, the church is expanding and taking over the world. And yet on the flip side of it, it is kind of amazing. These countries that really would count as Gog and Magog, and all that, by the way, as, as an interpretive side, I think those terms Gog and Magog, if you go back to Ezekiel, you know, Put and Cush, these are all the far, far-flung far nations that mm. the prophets would know about. They're, they're talking about the faraway places. In other words, the whole world is gathered together. Mm-hmm. You know, Gog and Magog is the United States. It's North America and South America. It's, it's the faraway places that they could not have imagined existed out beyond the waters and the coastlands, you know. And look at people are praising the name of Jesus and, and, and worshiping the name of Yahweh. Mm-hmm. 
in these faraway countries. That's incredible. That's an amazing thing. Like, who would have imagined that? That Christianity, this gospel teaching of Jesus that John probably could not have imagined, is the largest religion in the world. Okay? So you do have kind of reasons for optimisms and optimism and reason for pessimism, but I think what we have to admit is realistically there's kind of a warp and a weft of human history, right? There's kind of flux and flow, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's or waxing and waning, you know, there's, there's, it's hard to really paint a picture of just optimism or just pessimism. Mm-hmm. And I think the Amil view, not that I'm looking at history to tell me how to interpret the Bible, but the Amil view does actually explain that yeah. in a way the other views I don't think necessarily do. And I like what you said earlier about the kind of the conditionality of it, that the the church should think about its role, not only in history, but in the the story at large. And then now, what should we be doing? And Revelation calls us to do that. And Second Peter, which you mentioned, you know, hasten, we should be, we should count the patience of the Lord. Yeah. The slowness of the Lord has gracious patience with us yeah. so that we might have the opportunity to hasten the day yeah. of his return. I heard one guy saying this is, of course, kind of a flashy way to say it. Um, but I think there's a lot of truth in it. We ought to be praying and repenting and aspiring to the state of affairs that when Jesus returns, there's not much left to be done. <laughs> right um, now he could he could return into an utterly dark scene and you know bring him like he does like right. he did in his first coming right, right? utterly dark scene Roman uh, Roman rule over a corrupt Herodian kingship right he could come and arrive on that scene or we could be repenting untowards just mass conversion and growth of the church wouldn't that be a beautiful thing but that's something we can aspire to not that you know, not, 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 not that we might see that in our lives, but I think that's something to aspire to and yet also recognize uh, that not, that may not be necessarily what happens. Yeah, and I keep thinking about the kind of shift, like you keep putting it, the old shift from the old into the new. God will always preserve a remnant. Yeah. There, there will always be Zechariahs who are faithful yeah. and serving and et cetera. Um, but what, how will he find the church when he returns? Yeah. Um, and we can think about times in the past where he would find the church is pretty dark place or abusing its power or you know on the run as it were and uh hopefully we will be able to love our lord and love the world and love uh the gospel enough that we seek to proclaim it and he finds us yeah not much left to do and as we see in revelation 21 he will make the bride lovely and presentable you know, and we will be presented in a beautiful way by his grace. And yet, I think Jesus has told us he's working through us, his body, in the meantime. So we ought not to think low of that calling to be Christ's body on earth uh, during this time as we wait for his return. Well, thank you, brothers, for this conversation. Uh, we, we got to scratch the surface. There will be many pre-mill and post-mill folks out there who will think that we did not do anywhere near justice they should to their email opinions. us questions feel free to email us questions rebuttals rebukes um we receive them all uh it was great to be at the conferences recently with you all and meet some of our listeners who are at the evangelical theological society and connect with some of you all out there please feel free to reach out we love interacting uh with the audience and hearing how we can make this podcast better if you're interested in continuing this conversation at rts as a student please check us out at rts.edu forward slash washington um, and if you're interested in supporting the work of RTS, if you ta- if you listen to this, but you're not near a campus and you can't take classes 
purposes, but you'd still like to support the work. We'd love for you to give and support uh, the work that we're doing here. You can go to www.give2rtsdc.com. Give to the number two, rtsdc.com, and you can give to us there. Thank you so much for your support. Thanks for being with us this week. Look forward to being with you next week. Until then, take care. I just remember when Gray was like, when he was in Indonesia, you remember how like just polite and yeah. deferential yeah. and unopinionated he was? Yeah. Well, it's also... Those were good times. Hey, I stand by my, this is my spot comment now. Well, it's also because I was recording everything at like 10 p.m. That's true. So I was just like, you, you were know. tired. Yeah. We,